Back to Matthew we turn. Back to the Sermon on the Mount and back to the sixth chapter of Matthew. We're coming this morning to the second of three examples of true Christian behavior with a view toward, a particular view toward true Christian piety, what we might call uh, true religion. Jesus started this section of the sermon with a warning, you remember. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. From there, I say Jesus goes on to offer three examples in which he contrasts true faith and obedience with the counterfeit hypocrisy of empty and outward behavior devoid of heart, but desirous of praise. That is the praise of men, not of God. Three examples, I say, of which we come to the second today. They are giving and praying and fasting. Last week, we took up the first of those, giving. We were reminded that everything, and that is everything we do, is judged by and rewarded by our Father based on motive, on what He sees in our heart. We're giving to the poor. Why? If it's in order to be seen by other people, then the Lord has said it comes to naught. We've received our prayers. But are we giving out of love for them? Out of love, and most of all, for God. And with an eye toward the reward that He gives then that reward is certainly sure. That's the point of Jesus giving in secret. <clears throat> it was not so much that we may never give publicly, uh, that there's a ban on public giving. Jesus was constantly giving publicly Himself. He taught the disciples. He's taught us to do the very same thing. He was not saying that our giving must always be hidden and out of sight, but rather that it must always be Properly motivated. You might remember we quoted Spurgeon last week. Public, but not for publicity. Well, now we see the same is true for prayer. Uh, the second of these three examples to which we turn after we uh, pray. Father, we thank You for giving us this instruction. We thank You that You are our Father. That You hear our prayers. And whether they are publicly or privately, offered to you, for our Lord has taught us to do both. You are the one who hears, and you are the one who answers. And you are the great rewarder. Indeed, you yourself have made yourself our great reward. Speak to us now, we pray, Father, through your Son, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew chapter 6, we'll pick up at verse 5 and read through verse 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Over the course of our Sunday evening studies, over these past couple of years, as a matter of fact, we've often had occasion to remark, haven't we, that oftentimes the interpretive key to one passage of Scripture or another, to understanding that passage before us, is to look at what scholars call the light vort, or key word, literally the leading word in the passage. It was typical of Hebrew writers to indicate their theme and to emphasize the theme of whatever they were writing by using that word over and again. This has helped us tremendously, hasn't it, on Sunday evenings to understand Old Testament historical narratives, to look for those, those key, those leading words or groups of words that are repeatedly used. I say in biblical scholarship, this technique is called uh, Leitwort, a German term coined by the famous Jewish scholar Martin Buber. We have a Leitwort here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, don't we? What is it? What is that word? What word have we heard Jesus use over and over again as we read this morning? Father. Father. Ten times in these first 18 verses of chapter 6, Jesus turns our eyes to Father. To a lesser degree, but just as strikingly, Jesus has used the word hypocrite. He says that we must not give like the hypocrites. We must not pray like the hypocrites. We must not fast like the hypocrites. Seems to me that what Jesus is giving us here in these two key words, these light words, is the problem and the solution. The problem is clear. Hypocrisy. It, it is acting like we are one thing uh, when we are quite another. Acting apart behind a mask to the praise of men and in securing it, Jesus says, finding that in fact we've been paid in full. We have our full reward. This problem of hypocrisy is a real and present danger to us, to all of us. That's why Jesus says, beware. None of us is exempt. And all of us 
are tempted, and to one degree or another, we do this, don't we? We put on a show for others. It grieves us. It grieves us to the heart, but when we look hard at our hearts and at our motives, we find, alas, that it is all too true, all too true, all too often our motives are mixed. We must all struggle against this sin of hypocrisy. Some people, yes, even in the church, are given over completely to this sin. That is all they do in everything that they do. They act parts for the praise of people. These truly do rightly possess the title hypocrite. Why do people do this? Why do they become this way? Why do we become like this? Well, certainly we could say it's a failure to deal with our hearts, isn't it? We, we, we fail to understand and to consider the deceitfulness of sin. And we forget the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And so we do not take the necessary steps to put sin to death through the power of the Holy Spirit. We drift. This is how we end up becoming this way. We drift into Phariseeism because we forget our hearts. We forget to keep a strict hold on those hearts of ours. We begin just a little to enjoy that praise of people. We get a taste for it and then we start to love it more and more. But in our forgetfulness, there is something, or rather I should say, someone whom we forget even more than these. And who is that? Father. We forget Father. Right at the core of hypocrisy, of our hypocrisy, is a forgetfulness of Father. The, Jesus lays his finger here on the real problem. The real trouble with the heart of the hypocrite is, is that he or she doesn't know God as Father, as her, as his heavenly Father. There's a lack of security about this relationship, you see. The vertical relationship with God. There's a certain insecurity there about that relationship and, and about the certainty of the approval that direction. And so instead, security and approval are therefore sought on this level, in this direction, in the human horizontal direction. This is the real, the fundamental failure, by the way, of so many of these, of our horizontal relationships, our relationships with fellow human beings. See, we can't possibly be right with each other if we are not first right with God. That's, that's simply the, the, the case. So, so we see marriages struggling and, and falling apart. We, we see friendships failing. We see even families disintegrate. Why? Because there's not a right relationship this way with God the Father. Such is hypocrisy. At its core, 
Hypocrisy is insecurity this way, with God, and therefore seeking the opinions and the praise of others and the security that we dream or imagine can be found this way. Now this was the Pharisees' problem. And it is still the problem of modern Pharisees today. It's not that religious disciplines are wrong. The problem was not that they prayed or that they fasted or that they gave. All of these things are good things. Things that Jesus Himself practiced. Things He tells us as His disciples. Expects us to do. In fact, here again, He is assuming. He assumes we pray. He doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. The problem is not first a problem of practice. It is rather a problem of person. And I do not mean the person who's doing the praying. I mean the person to whom one is praying. That's the difference. That's where the difference is. To whom do you pray? To whom do you pray? The Pharisees, they were not praying to their heavenly Father. When they prayed, they prayed to a tyrant. They prayed to a slave driver whose yoke was always heavy. They claimed to know God. They claimed to pray to God. But they did not know Him. He was not Father. He was not Father to the people in whose faces either, in in whose faces the Pharisees slammed the door of the kingdom of God, Jesus said, by distorting the very idea of God. They hated God, the Pharisees did. They certainly did not know Him the way you know Him, as Father. This is a common theme. Uh, not only of Jesus' sermon, by the way, his sermon on the mount here, this, is, this matter of God as our Father, it's right through, it's shot through his entire ministry. Have you ever noticed this about his ministry? Here we are near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what's he talking about? He's talking about God our Father. But we can remember just a couple of weeks ago, can't we, on Easter morning, hearing Jesus speak those precious words to Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb near the end of his earthly ministry, I ascend to my Father and your Father. Words, by the way, that Mary as a faithful evangelist carried gospel truths to all the rest. I've got a message from Father. It didn't take a whole lot of digging for me to figure out that the title Father is used over 170 times in the Gospels. And by the way, for those of you who are interested in such things, except for John's Gospel, Matthew has the largest number of references at 63. And of those 63 references to Father in Matthew, 44 refer to God. Now we're unsurprised to be reminded of a parable at this point. A parable that Jesus told about a certain father. And even less are we surprised that he told it in the context 
of conflict with the Pharisees. It's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and we know it affectionately as the prodigal son. You remember how the father in that story receives back his son? Receives back the prodigal with open arms, with forgiveness, with love, with with fatherly care and affection poured out on him. And, And you remember, too, the reaction of the elder brother? Remember, he was, he was angry. He refused to go in uh, to the party. His father pleads with him, come in, join the celebration. But the elder brother retorts, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never once disobeyed your orders. And you've never thrown me apart. Do you hear how distorted this relationship is with the father? He doesn't see his father as father. He sees his he sees him only as a master, a slave driver, and not even a very kind one. He suspects that he must labor. The son suspects that he must labor in order to manipulate his father into caring for him, into loving him. He doesn't understand the Father at all. He doesn't understand His love. He doesn't understand His heart. Just so the Pharisees failed to understand God. They had not a gracious relationship with with God, and therefore they didn't want anyone else to have one either. Later in this Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going to take the Pharisees head on. Woe to you, Jesus says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. They knew nothing of the Heavenly Father. Nothing of His grace, nothing of His pardon, nothing of His amazing love. They were altogether insecure about God. And they lived to spread that insecurity. The dread about the great slave driver in the sky. I guess misery loves company. And their insecurity was the driving force of their hypocrisy. Insecure about God, they looked for, inse- for insecurity rather from men. Specifically from the praise of men. They were, we could boil it down I think, in the words of the country song, they were looking for love in all the wrong places. And now we understand verse 5. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, there's another group that Jesus tosses in here, introduces, and it's almost jarring when he does it in verse 7. Did you notice that? He jumps from the elite of the religious Jews to what might seem to to be, and certainly did seem to the elite Jews, 
to be the very opposite end of the spectrum to the Gentiles, to the pagans. Verse 7, what are they doing? Well, they're heaping up phrases and words in their prayers. Why? Because they think they can, you know, manipulate God, whoever God is, that way. That they will be heard for their many, many words. I can't help but wonder if the Pharisees listening to Jesus that day understood what Jesus has just done. He has put them, the Pharisees, in the same class, basically, with the Gentile pagans in the same category. Three days ago, uh, Muslims around the world started a month of prayers and fasting, what's called Ramadan. I was interested to read in the instructions written for Muslims of, of every sect during this season that extra benefits could be received from Allah if certain prayers were repeated over and over and over. Specifically, the instructions say it is beneficial, there can be benefits gained, according to the instructions, by reciting over and over and over short phrases like Allahu Akbar, or God is the greatest. But you know, Muslims don't have a corner on this heaping up of, of empty phrases. Our fathers and Hail Marys heaped up are just a couple of our Christian versions. There's an irony for you, right? We can turn this very prayer that the Lord taught us here into that kind of mindless religious exercise. We're not exempt. Hunter Krishnas do the same with their mantras, Jews the same. All to manipulate God in some way. To turn Him in our favor. You see, of course, that it all comes down to this, doesn't it? It all comes down to, to this. To the vertical relationship. To who God is, who we understand Him to be, and our relationship with Him. If God, let's say for a minute, if God is a demanding, never satisfied, cruel master, whose favor must be won by our words. If he is a cold deity and distant that must be manipulated or cajoled into acting in our favor by and through mindless, you know, mechanical words, then of course, these are exactly the ways we should pray. This is Jesus' point. That's not who God is. That's not who God is to us. To His children. Let me ask you, who is God to you? Who is God to you? I don't mean that so much subjective as, as in the objective sense. Is He the great slave driver, hands on his hips, demanding more and more and more of you and giving less and less and less? Is he the one for whom you must you know, perform in order to cajole him into loving you? Now, Jesus says it this way. He says, when you pray, say, Father. 
Why say Father? Because that is who He is to you, dear child of God. That's who He is to you. Understand this. Let it sink in. Understand His heart toward you. He's your Father. And you, therefore, are His precious Son. His treasured daughter. That's who you are. Pray to your Father, verse 6. Your Father knows what you need. Verse 8. There is real security. There is true peace. There is freedom. In, if, in your heavenly Father, you have, you have all the love and all of the affection. You have all the affirmation. You have all the esteem. You have all the praise. You have all the provision. All the security. All the strength you could ever possibly need if you will but receive them from Him. Stop looking for love in all the wrong places. You have all you need and more in Him from Father. He loves you more that you will ever know more than you can imagine. He loves you. And knowing this and experiencing this simply must govern the way we pray and the way we worship and the, and the way we relate to others, the way we live with everything. G.I. Packer sums it up this way. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching. Uh, dare I contradict uh, the great Dr. Packer and say, hey, you sum up the whole of biblical teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. Of having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, well, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. Precisely. This is the way that we pray indicates how we think about God. And the way we think about God simply must control our prayers and our whole outlook on life. Jesus has an eye here for the pattern of our prayer. And so that's exactly what He gives us. He gives us a pattern for prayer. It's true, we sometimes use these words uh, verbatim in our worship together. But let's remember that Jesus' intent here is to give us a pattern. A pattern for prayer, not a locked-in script for our prayers. And and here he supplies us this pattern, and 
If you watch closely, he even gives us the priorities of prayer. And if you look even more closely, you'll see he's giving us the priorities for our lives. All to the Father. For the sake of surveying the prayer quickly, because time is passing quickly, we, we may say that Jesus gives us here in this prayer to Father uh, five things in particular uh, to look at or to consider. Very quickly. First, Father's praise. Then Father's priority. Then Father's provision. Then Father's pardon. And Father's protection. First, Father's praise. Maybe more broadly, we could say the worship of the Father, which issues forth in true praise. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, what are we saying here? Well, we're, we're saying our Father in heaven, uh, we're, we're saying a couple of very striking things in this address to God. We're saying two great things that could occupy us for hours, literally. First, we're calling him our Father, and that is amazing. That is so uh, amazing. <laughs> I mean, how can we say it? It's so remarkable and so wonderful. He's our Father. And as such, God is personal. He is personal. John Stott puts it this way. He says, He is as much He as I am I. He may be indeed, as C.S. Lewis's well-known phrase has it, beyond personality, but he's certainly not less. He is a personal and loving Father. The ideal Father in every way to us. And our relationship to Him is family. We are adopted children of His. There's a, a closeness of a father and his child that uh, is such that... When we pray, it's like we're crawling up into our Father's lap and making our prayers, our praises, our petitions known to Him in prayer. He is, he is in a word, good. But He's also great. And therefore, second, in the same breath we say, in heaven. Why? Well, it's not so much that we're locating Him by saying that he's in heaven, we're stressing rather his glory and his greatness. He is in heaven. We are on earth. He is the creator. We are the creatures made by him, dependent for our every breath upon him. So though we come to Father, to loving Father, we also come with humility, don't we? And we come with devotion and we come with awe. This is why the prayer continues immediately into the first petition. Hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Hallowed means holy. Holy be your name is what we're saying. Why? Because God's name would be, it must certainly be more holy if we say it. Are we praying that God's name will be holier today than it was yesterday? Obviously not. But as in so much in worship, and we made this point already this morning, we are affected by this, aren't we? We are helped to understand, to remember that God is holy. He is holy, 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 as the angels are crying out even now in glory. He is other. He is pure. All that holy means. But that brings us right back to wonder, doesn't it? That this holy, holy, holy God is in fact 
our Father. That we dare to call Him Father. As the ancient church prayed, they used to say it this way, as an introduction in worship, before they prayed the Lord's Prayer together, they prayed this, grant that we may dare to call on Thee as Father and to say our Father. It's, it's also worth noting that along with the, the intimacy then of Father and the adoration in heaven, we also have here in the opening address a fellowship, don't we? Notice Jesus says, not my Father, although He is every bit that to every one of us. He doesn't say pray my Father, He says pray our Father. Immediately in prayer, dear flock, we are knit together before our Father. And by our Father. By the fact that He is my Father and He is your Father and He's your Father and yours and yours and yours and yours. So much for the Father's praise. Second, the Father's priority. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We tend, like Pharisees, don't we? We want to build our own little kingdoms. We're all about building our own little kingdoms. And, and by nature, we want it how? Our way, right? But when we truly turn to God in prayer, we are happily forced to see that the priority must be on His kingdom and therefore on His will. He is king. Matthew's been at pains to demonstrate that to us, hasn't he, in this gospel. His rule, his reign, the increase of his kingdom, the increase of those who bow the knee to him. These things matter to us most of all when we bow the knee to him. This is why we even have built, by the way, into our headings on our prayer meeting agenda on Wednesday evenings every week, the reminder that we are praying and all of our petitions, whether for health or for healing or for civil leaders or world events, this one thing, the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's it in everything. The advancement of the kingdom of God. And by necessity, of course, the diminishing, the destruction of Satan's kingdom and the hastening of the kingdom of glory when we will see Him in His glorious return, our Savior. Notice with me before we move on that Jesus has taught us with the order of this prayer the priority of our very lives and of together as a church. The whole of our lives are, is transformed by this. Now we move on. The petitions focusing on God's glory were first. Now the, this praise and priority of the Father is matched, balanced with the petitions for our needs. Moving on third, Father's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And now after what we've been praying, what we've been praying so far in this prayer, this pattern of prayer, does this seem kind of, I don't know, uh, trivial? Does this seem like we're going from the sublime to the ridiculous or... Or to the mundane anyway? Give us this day our daily bread. We're not. For one thing, this petition expresses our dependence on God. Now we who are so affluent, and we are in the West, uh, 
we've got cupboards full, and we have fridges and freezers full of food. But the fact is, we are just as dependent as our brothers and sisters all over the world who are living hand to mouth for every single meal. This petition reminds us of the fact, doesn't it? We can't say this without remembering it. But there's another reason that it's not trivial. This petition, too, also, uh, also has to do with the glory of God, doesn't it? Because remember we learned in Corinthians that we eat and drink and whatever we do, we do it. Why? Yes, for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Nothing mundane about that. Fourth, we pray for the Father's pardon. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Now everybody wants to know, why, why, are we, why do, do we pray? Some Christians say, forgive us our trespasses and sins. Other Christians say, forgive us our debts. Well, Matthew has debts. Very common way of speaking of, of sin. But Luke's account of the same prayer, uh, of the Lord's prayer, has trespasses or sins. The words mean the same thing. No contradiction. Uh, but uh, one's, uh, so one's way of saying the Lord's prayer really depends on which version one is using. What's more important, what's really important here to notice, is the relationship between our receiving forgiveness from God and granting forgiveness to others. The important thing is this, and Jesus expands on it in verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that's bracing, isn't it? The point, though, don't, don't, don't misunderstand it, the point here is not that forgiving others is the price of getting your forgiveness, okay? We're not talking about a quid pro quo here. The point is rather this, that to ask forgiveness from God while remaining unwilling to extend forgiveness to others brings us right back to the problem of hypocrisy, doesn't it? It unmasks you as a hypocrite because it renders your prayer an act of hypocrisy. God knows the heart that prays. Someone said it very well. The spirit open to receive love is of necessity open to bestow love. That's what Jesus is talking about. Had we time this morning, we jump over to Matthew 18. We'll get there eventually. <laughs> Lord willing. With the Lord's parable of the servant there, the unjust uh, unforgiving servant. He would not forgive the debts that were owed to him, though he had been forgiven so much. It perfectly describes the attitude of Jesus uh, that, that Jesus is condemning here. There's an echo of the Lord's teaching also here in Colossians 3.13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Finally, fifth, we petition for Father's protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Having asked for deliverance from sins that we've already committed, now we ask for protection in two clauses. Protection from future sinning. Now either evil or evil one is possible 
You're looking at different English translations, perhaps. Either is possible, and either certainly is just fine as a translation. The point, however you translate it, is the same. We have got to have our Father's protection. Just think about it. Your enemies, the world, your own flesh, and the devil. All three are coming against you hard and heavy, bombarding you with temptation constantly. And we have protection from that temptation for the asking. The fact that Jesus here tells us to pray for, the, for this protection means that God is both able and willing to supply that protection when the world and our own flesh and the devil all come conspiring against us. We are weak. You know the rest. But He is strong. How much much more could obviously be said about every one of these and has been. Entire volumes have been written on the Lord's Prayer, but you get the point. We must not pray pretentiously for the praise of people. Nor may we pray these mechanical prayers to manipulate. Whether in private or in public, and remember Jesus has taught us to pray in both realms, prayed both ways Himself. Whether in private or in public, we must pray to Father. To our Father in heaven. Remembering that He loves us. He loves you with a love unbreakable, unshakable, unflappable, tender, amazing, and affectionate. And that before you say it, He knows what you need before you even ask. And that He answers and He acts on your behalf with all the power and all the authority of the heavenly King that He is. So, pray then like this. Amen.